We're not trying to acculturate them, uh, but we're trying to just, you know, fellowship with them and know that, you know, we meet on the common ground of our love for Jesus. God said he would bless those who bless Israel. And your theological understanding of God's love for Israel needs to motivate you to take practical steps. Our passion for evangelism needs to come from an understanding that the Word of God can change lives. Does God still have a purpose for Israel? Or has the church replaced them? Can you show God's love without preaching the gospel? Listen to this episode and find out. Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today is the ninth anniversary of the death of Chuck Smith. We will listen to some timeless insights, God's plan for the nation of Israel, and the words and sound advice from Pastor Chuck Smith, talking about his life, ministry, growth, dramatic experiences in Israel, and personal and theological perspectives. Here's today's episode with Joel Rosenberg. You were born on June 25th? June 25th. 27. 1927. You got that one. (laughs) So you had a few years there. You had about 21 years before Israel was prophetically reborn. What were you taught? What did your parents think? What did your pastor think? What were your views and the views of those around you about Israel pre-48? Well, I grew up in a church that did believe that God had a purpose for the nation of Israel. And they did teach that, uh, you know, God was yet going to work through the nation of Israel and bring them back into the land. And so it was, of course, just to us an exciting fulfillment of Bible prophecy uh, that we had already believed in, but now seeing it happen right before our eyes was surely an exciting experience. I'll say, do you remember uh, the events around May 14th, 48? Do you have personal recollections of sort of that, that moment as Israel was literally being declared a state? Oh, yes. In fact, I heard the uh, broadcast of Ben-Gurion on the radio, though I couldn't understand the Hebrew. But when he declared, you know, that Israel was now again among the nations of the world, you know, and it was uh, just an exciting experience because to me, it was just the fulfillment of prophecy. Let's go into that a little bit further, because for almost 19 centuries, even many of our church fathers were saying, well, we're we're misreading those scriptures about a, a literal rebirth of Israel and Jews coming back to the land. So for those 21 years of your life, when it hadn't yet happened, and then that moment of 48, um, what did that teach you about God's Word, and, and how did you perceive those things? Well, of course, the idea that, uh, you know, God was through with Israel and the replacement theology was something that I had always been taught against, and uh, that God was not through. And, of course, reading the Bible, you would have to realize that God still has a purpose for Israel, and, you know, if He can a man forget his cunning, you know, let his right hand forget its cunning. You know, if God would uh, forget the old Israel, you know. So I, I think that it was something that we were anticipating, something that we believed was going to happen. But yet always the reality of it was just overwhelming. What, how old were you when you became a pastor and you began to teach the scriptures? Well, actually, I uh, was 
about uh, 17 years old when I was first asked to take over the uh, youth department at the church I was in. And so I started at that time, you know, uh, handling the youth services and saw God do a marvelous work. And among the young people that I was ministering to, I went from there to Bible college and then on into the ministry. And I graduated from Bible college when I was 20 years old. And uh, I had doubled up in courses. I went to two Bible colleges at the same time so I could because I was anxious to get out into the ministry. And so uh, I started my first pastorate in Prescott, Arizona at uh, the... uh, ripe young age of, well, I just had turned 21. So 48, 1948, yes. So uh, it's been an exciting and wonderful experience. When did you begin literally teaching Genesis to Revelation? Was that from the beginning of your ministry? No, this was not from the beginning. This was actually in my first several pastorates. I had two years of sermons. And so I would stay in a (laughs) church for two years, and then I would ask the bishop for a transfer and I'd go to another church and give out my two years of sermons. And this worked well until I got to Huntington Beach. And in Huntington Beach, uh, I was always an avid surfer. And I found out that the surf in Huntington Beach was so perfect. And I just didn't want to leave Huntington Beach. And so I was You needed getting, new material. <laughs> yeah, I was, had to get new material because I was getting to the end of my two years of uh, sermons, uh, topical type sermons uh, through the Bible. And I had been reading Halley's Bible Pocket Handbook, and he suggested that every pastor should be taking his church through the whole Bible, and ideally his Sunday morning message would come out of the reading of assignment of the previous week. And he gave actually a suggested reading schedule through the Bible for the churches to take. But I thought, well, rather than skipping from Old to New Testament and so forth, I'll just go straight through and uh, 10 chapters a week, and it'll take a couple of years to get through. And, and so that's when I started through the Bible. But the amazing thing was uh, during that time, uh, the church that I was pastoring uh, just began to explode. And uh, people were getting excited over the Word of God and uh, over uh, just, you know, studying through the Word. And uh, the church had grown so big that I was just very, very happy there in Huntington Beach. And, you know, what happened is that uh, because of the growth of the church, uh, of course, the bishops noticed the reports and so forth. So when they had a problem with one of their major churches, uh, they asked if I would please go and uh, take this church uh, to try and rescue it from uh, the destruction that looked like was inevitable. And so uh, reluctantly, I moved from Huntington Beach because I loved living at the beach. I loved, you know, the, the life down there in Huntington. It was a small little beach town at the time, just 6,300 people. And uh, we had the uh, surf to ourselves practically. And to me, it was closest thing to heaven you could get here on earth. Uh, but yet we went ahead and took this church and uh, so, but we then just did the same thing, just took the people straight through the Bible. It had become sort of the pattern of my ministry in my life. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, and this was the, this was Calvary Chapel then? Uh, well, no, no, it was still within five or six years before we started okay. Calvary Chapel. Okay. So 
you started through Genesis, right? Genesis. Or, or did you start through Matthew? No, Genesis. Started through Genesis. So, so if you were doing ten chapters a week, it was week two that you hit the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, oh my, yes. So let's go, just take a few moments, and what are the distinctive elements, in your view, of the Abrahamic covenant? And as you think about communicating that to younger pastors and, and, and really trying to understand why that's important, just help us understand the Abrahamic covenant as you see it from the scriptures. Well, as I see the Abrahamic covenant, first of all, uh, I see it as sort of a covenant that God made and that uh, it was... Really, of course, as he said, uh, not based upon, uh, you know, the nation's goodness or whatever, but just upon God. And, and it was God going to do it for his name's sake, mm-hmm. you know, and he was going to bless them. And, and thus, uh, you know, I saw it as something that was just irreversible, that it came from God and he was the initiator of the covenant. And uh, I didn't see any restrictions that God put on the covenant. Well, of course, there were the conditions of serving him and following him. And of course, we know that Israel failed in that for a period of time and thus lost out on, uh, you know, the uh, inhabiting of the land and uh, were throughout the world scattered for so many centuries. But yet uh, God's faithfulness, he promised that he was going to bring them back in the last days. And so how exciting to be in this time when we see God again fulfilling his covenant and we realize that there's yet a portion of the covenant that is being worked out and will be fulfilled soon. But I do believe that after the church is gone, that God has got a seven-year covenant of Daniel chapter 9 still to be fulfilled with the nation of Israel. And so it's going to be exciting days. Amen to that. So help us see the difference between uh, you're describing the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant. Then, of course, there's the Mosaic covenant that begins to add the conditions. How how do you make the distinguishing features between them? Because you've got, I think, a lot of pastors and theologians and and lay people who who confuse whether the, the promise of the land and the blessing is conditional, and if, you know, that seems to be Mosaic covenant, but Abrahamic yes. covenant seems, you know, it strikes us as unconditional, but but obviously people are confusing that. How do you teach that? How do you explain to people the difference between those two? Well, I really see that uh, the uh, covenant with Israel is a unconditional covenant too. In fact, God uh, did declare it's not because of your goodness that I'm going to do this, but because, you know, just for my sake and my word's sake. I'm going to do it. So it's God's covenant with himself, you know, right. uh, that he's going to do it. And, of course, he has done it. So what can you say? <laughs> uh, all right. So, so you have a situation where God is saying, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to make you a blessing. You're going to be a mm-hmm. blessing to the nations. The Messiah is going to come through you. But you have pastors today who are saying that current Israel is not prophetic Israel, biblical Israel, because the Jews are not yet repentant. So how could they have come back into the land? How do you respond to that? How do you teach people scripturally about that? Well, again, God is declaring it isn't because of your righteousness that I'm doing this. It's because of my word and it's because of who I am that I'm doing this and sort of pleading his sovereignty and saying, I can do what I please. And if I want to, I can do it, you know. And of course, we see him doing it, which of course, to me, is just proof that it was God's covenant all the way along. Why do you think so many pastors, not just in the United States, but around the world, 
struggle with their understanding of God's plan and purpose for Israel and the Jewish people? Well, I, I think that in this replacement theology, uh, that they are looking uh, to say, well, we are the chosen people and we are the ones that, you know, can claim the promises of blessings and so forth. And they're taking really promises that God made to the nation of Israel and applying it to the church. And I think that it's just a misapplication of the scriptural promises that God has made to the nation of Israel. Do you see a correspondence between pastors teaching topically versus expository teaching, or do you think that's not connected? I really feel that if you go straight through the word, uh, that you can't skip it, you know. And I think that we do get selective many times. And if I'm going to be preaching topically or all, I'm going to choose topics that I enjoy, uh, topics that I'm comfortable with. And there are many topics I would avoid because I'm not comfortable with them. And so that's the advantage to me of going straight through the Bible, because you have to deal with everything and it's all there. And so uh, you're giving the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, to me, the important thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's, I want to go back and forth between the theological and, okay. and your own personal. So 1967, you are a pastor. You are seeing uh, this buildup of forces against Israel. The president of Egypt, Nasser, is saying he's going to throw the Jews into that's the right. sea. Building up to that moment and then the, the Six-Day War itself, what was your perspective? What, how did you, yeah, I was just curious your perspective, these, you know, looking back all these years later. Well, because I did believe that God was going to, uh, you know, keep his a covenant with Israel and was going to bring them back and give them the land and that they would become a nation once again. Uh, there in Ezekiel 37, you know, he's going to establish them and these bones are going to have life. And, and so I, I did believe the scriptures and so, you know, you wonder, is this the fulfillment and, and all? And as you watch it uh, develop, you get ex- more excited all of the time because you realize, yes, it is. But that also puts us then in what the Bible referred to as in the latter years, as God talked about, you know, what he was going to do with the nation of Israel. And, and thus, because I was very uh, deeply steeped in the prophecies of Ezekiel uh, 36 through 40, read here, 39 to 40, that, uh, you know, to me, it was just exciting to see that we are in the last days and God is preparing to, again, pour his spirit out upon the nation of Israel. They would come back, not necessarily believing, but, uh, you know, they would develop the land and uh, they would become a nation. And uh, then they would be threatened. Uh, by the outside forces, and God would bring them a miraculous divine deliverance that would open their eyes to the truth of God, and uh, there would be the revival. And, and if they're casting away, you know, was brought salvation, how much more they're gathering together again, and God again working with the nation of Israel, will it be a blessing to the whole world? Amen. Do you recall what year you first personally visited Israel and what that experience was like for you? It was in the 70s, early 70s, that we made our first trip to Israel. And uh, 
It was sort of like... I know you were there in 73. Yes. You've told me something. It'd be a good yes. story. We can tell that as well. But uh, so. Well, the scripture says, when the Lord returned again, the captivity of Zion, we were like those that dreamed. And it was like a dream. I mean, uh, the first time I went to Israel, we were just so filled with wonder and awe. Uh, that uh, I really didn't see much of the land. I was just walking around in a dream state. It was actually two or three visits later that you really begin to drink in and, and realize what you're seeing. I've been there over 40 times now, and it's always just a beautiful, exciting experience for me to be there in the land. Never tired of it, never got wearied of it, because it has always just been so exciting. You were there uh, when the 1973 That's Yom Kippur right. War broke out. Would you tell a story or two about what that was like? That was an extraordinary moment. Very interesting moment. In fact, uh, we usually went in the springtime, but this year I think we went twice. We went in the spring, and then we went in the fall because we had others that wanted to go to Israel. And so we were over there, and uh, we were actually uh, there in uh, uh, the— uh, Mount of Olives in the uh, International Hotel uh, when the war broke out. And uh, we saw, uh, of course, uh, you know, on the Sabbath day, everything was quiet in Jerusalem. But then we heard the uh, sirens go off and all, and we saw the tanks, uh, uh, you know, heading out towards uh, the Sea of Galilee and all. And so we knew something was going on. Actually, uh, because it uh, was the Sabbath day, we had a group of young kids with us. And so I decided I would take them into the old city to shop uh, because, you know, everything else was closed. And so uh, we knew that there would be shops open in the old city. And as we got to the old city, uh, they were beginning to close their shops. And we said, what's going on? And they just, you know, brush us off and and uh, we're closing up their shops. They said, well, we uh, we want to buy something, you know, and we're here with these kids and all. But they just, you know, were very uh, serious. And, and we knew something was going on. And then when we saw all of these uh, troop carriers and, and tanks heading out through the valley there, uh, we knew that there has to be something going on. So we got back to the hotel, and there they informed us that— uh, you know, that uh, Egypt and Syria had attacked Israel and that, uh, you know, they were having to, you know, defend for their lives. And the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, Israel had had experiences in the past with war with, you know, these nations around them. Uh, it wasn't the first time that uh, they had had wars from Syria and Egypt combined and even Jordan. Jordan. Yeah, right. And, uh, God had given them miraculous victories. And uh, so uh, this was a little different. And, uh, you know, what had happened is that Israel had gotten, I think, just a little bit of overconfidence in their ability. And, uh, you know, they thought that uh, the uh, bar uh, line down in Egypt was impenetrable. Uh, but when the Egyptians came across and, and took it and began to move up through the Sinai, and as uh, the uh, Syrians uh, began to come on down into the Golan Heights and were just above the Sea of Galilee, suddenly Israel realized this is serious and this is really a real threat to our existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
So they moved us from Jerusalem, uh, the, the Israeli government, over to uh, the coast in order to uh, get us out of the uh, way of any danger. And because we had a very large group and uh, they wanted to protect, you know, the American citizens that were there. Then they got us out. I, actually, we left at midnight out of uh, the Ben-Gurion Airport, and uh, we had a uh, military planes escorting us out over. And, of course, it was interesting flying <laughs> and was, seeing yeah. on the wingtips these yeah. Israeli jets, you know, that were sort of uh, accompanying you for your safety's sake. Wow. And so we were able to uh, change our itinerary, and we headed to Greece and, and took in Greece and Rome instead of finishing off in Israel that particular time. But it was very exciting to be there during this time. In fact, uh, one evening at, there in the hotel in Netanya, uh, where we were staying, uh, the uh, air raid uh, warnings went off, and so we had to move to the basement of the hotel and we were down there excited. You've seen some dramatic things obviously happen, both being in Israel during the 1973 war and not just by yourself, but bringing young people to learn yes. about God's heart for the land and, and, and from the word of God. Uh, when was the first time you did a conference in Israel? Talk about that and your heart for wanting to teach others or from people from around the world God's plan and purpose for the for the land and for the people. I was asked to be one of the speakers for the Peace of Jerusalem conference. And one of the other speakers at that conference was Menachem Begin. Wow. And so uh, we were in the back room together, you know, prior to uh, the speaking engagements. And uh, I had the privilege of meeting what to me was one of the greatest men I've ever known. I mean, he was just so thoroughly Israeli. And, uh, you know, just, um, it, it, I, well, he was inspiring to be around. We had... Is this what the time frame roughly was? This early 80s? Or? Early 80s, yes. Okay. We had had an opportunity uh, to meet with him a little earlier in his office in Jerusalem, a year or two earlier. And uh, one of the men in our church had uh, given us a million dollars to take uh, as a gift to the nation of Israel from wow. the church. And so uh, we had an appointment with uh, Begin to, uh, in his office to take him this check. And, of course, uh, part of it was to go uh, to build a baptismal up on the Jordan River. We had been baptizing really? on in the Jordan River, and we'd have to go down these muddy banks and, and you know, you trying to baptize 100 people or more and get them out, up out of the muddy banks and slipping. And, and you had to change in the buses. And it was not a comfortable thing, uh, the baptismals there in Israel. So uh, we had uh, given money to build the baptismal spot, which you have today there in Israel. People now have comfortable quarters, showers, and so forth right. after the baptisms and so forth. And so we donated that to the nation of Israel, uh, plus money uh, for the IDF forces and then plus money to, at that time, Israel was looking at the possibility of bringing water from uh, the Mediterranean on into the Dead Sea to replenish the water in the Dead Sea and so forth, because it was, was constantly evaporating. 
And, and so we were able to meet with him in his office and give him this check. So we had had a little bit of a background of meeting him. And now we were in the back room together. We're going to be speaking at this Peace of Jerusalem conference there in uh, Jerusalem itself. And um, as we were in the back room talking, he is a very, very congenial, uh, warm man. And uh, I felt very comfortable with him. And I said, you know, I said, we're very, very close in our beliefs. I said, you believe in the God of Israel. I said, I believe in the God of Israel. I believe in the God of the Old Testament. I said, and thus we both are agreeing that he was the creator and that he chose the nation of Israel and poured out his blessings upon them and through them promised to bring the Messiah into the world. And I said, I believe in that God. And so I said, we believe in the same God. I said, you believe that uh, he promised the Messiah? I believe that he promised the Messiah. I said, this is probably the only difference in our beliefs. I said, I believe that the Messiah is coming soon. You believe that the Messiah is coming soon. I said, when he comes, you'll say, this is the Messiah. And I'll say, yes, this is the Messiah. But I said, here's where our difference lies. You believe that this will be his first coming. And I believe it will be his second coming, that Jesus indeed was the Messiah and that uh, he's going to be coming again soon. And the promises to Israel will be fulfilled as he establishes God's kingdom upon the earth. You're looking for that. I'm looking for that. And it'll be the same Messiah when he sets it up. So I said, really, there's not very much difference between what we believe. You know, when you really look at it, basically, we're believing the same thing, with the exception that we believe that the Messiah is coming again It'll be his second coming. And he smiled and he uh, just sort of nodded. And, and it, was, it was a very beautiful experience uh, to be able to share that with him. Mm. I mean, that's an interesting story for a, a couple reasons. Uh, first, you're indicating that your theological understanding of God's love for Israel uh, needs to motivate you to take practical steps. So let's talk for a few moments about uh, things that you've done uh, and encouraged other pastors that you've trained, practical ways to bless Israel. But also, I want to come back to this issue of both the similarities and the differences theologically and the importance of the church being clear and open about that. So let's start with the, sort of the practical ways that you've seen scripturally uh, that, that, that you and the pastors you've trained um, have taken uh, steps to, to, to show the love of God. They'll show the love of Jesus uh, to the Jewish people, to the state of Israel. Well, the Lord said he would bless those that would bless Israel. And so we believe that God has blessed us tremendously. And we believe that a great reason for that is the fact that we sought to bless Israel. So every time when we go over to Israel, uh, we take gifts for the people over there. Sometimes for the nation itself, as with uh, the particular time that we were mentioning earlier, uh, but many times just for uh, special needs that we see mm-hmm. in the nation of Israel. Uh, so uh, we saw the need for some bomb shelters up in the northern part of Israel, uh, Kiryat Shemona, where 
they used to be lobbing shells and so forth into the city there. So we helped build a lot of bomb shelters and supply them with things for the people who had to go into the bomb shelters during the time of the shellings. And uh, we, uh, of course, uh, also have given a, a lot of support uh, for different projects, like, as I mentioned, the uh, baptismal yeah, area sure. for Israel. And uh, so uh, we have always sought to just leave something behind that just will remind them that there are Christians in the United States who love them, who support their cause, who are praying for them, and uh, are re- seeking to remember them in ways that would be beneficial for them. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Our verse of the day today is taken from Romans 11.5. And if he chose them by grace, then it is not what they have done that made him his people. If they could be made his people by what they did, his gift of grace would not really be a gift. Our prayer request today is that we pray that God gives Christians and believers worldwide the love for the scriptures and the understanding of the promises God made to Israel in the last days. And we pray that the passion for evangelism is ignited in Christians around the world and they take practical steps for the advancement of the kingdom. So now let's shift to that, that other portion that you raised, which in your conversation with Menachem Begin, there are some pastors and theologians who really feel like, all right, yes, we want to, you know, we want to show God's love, but we don't want to, we don't want to share the gospel. We don't want to explain that Jesus is the Messiah because that might create more of a rift uh, between Jews and Christians. Your perspective on that and and your personal approach and the way you've equipped pastors over the years in, in terms of how to show the whole counsel of God's love to the Jewish people, the state of Israel? Well, I think that you can be, uh, you know, obtrusive. I believe, you know, I think that you can be overbearing in your uh, witness to them and thinking, you know, you've got to get them to sign on the dotted line, you know, of, of conversion and all. Uh, where I, I do believe that is planting seeds and uh, just, uh, you know, not coming in in a very forceful way, uh, but just in a very loving way, and just well, now this is the way you see it, but this is the way we see it, and and let them see the comparison, and uh, point out the prophecies concerning the Messiah that were fulfilled with Jesus. 
in their own scriptures, you know, turning them to Isaiah 53 and giving them a different interpretation than the rabbis are giving them on the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and on Psalm 22. And, and so we take them in their own scriptures and, and show them why we believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And uh, not in an obtrusive way, uh, but just in sort of an informative way. In other words, Understand why we believe what we believe. In other words, it isn't just a blind faith, but we believe that there's a real biblical basis for the faith that we have and the positions that we take. That's a similar approach that you would take that you take here in the United States. I mean, you're yes. um, I mean, you have a heart for evangelism, but that comes out of your sense that if people hear the word of God, their lives are going to change. I mean, is that a fair way to? assess your 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 personal approach towards the scriptures. Very true. Yeah. Now, some uh, Arab believers and even some pastors who have a a heart for uh, Palestinians and other Arab believers feel like those who love Israel take it. It's sort of an either or situation that that, that American evangelicals, for example, are we're pro-Israel, but we therefore must have some hostility towards or, 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 or hatred for or disregard of the Palestinians or others. Scripturally, how do you approach that? How have you personally approached teaching and, and putting into practice God's you know, heart for, for Israel's neighbors and her enemies? Interestingly enough, we have many Calvary chapels now in Israel. And we do have Calvary chapels for the Arabs, and we have Calvary chapels for the Christians. And so, uh, you know, the Jewish Christians. And, and so it's an interesting thing uh, that they do get together and have fellowship together because they are all identified with Calvary Chapel, uh, but uh, some of them are Arab congregations, some of them Christian congregations. Mm-hmm. Scripturally, how do you see God's view of the neighbors of Israel, the enemies of Israel? Uh, what do you see in Scripture about God's heart for them? Well, you know, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And I do believe that we're in a time Uh, as far as the world is concerned, when the basic thrust of the Spirit of God is upon the Gentile nations to draw out the bride for Jesus Christ. And that, of course, isn't just exclusively Gentiles. Many, many Jews uh, comprise a part of the body of Jesus Christ today. And so, uh, as with Paul said, he has broken down that wall of partition that once existed uh, between the Jew and the Gentile, and he's made us all one in Christ Jesus. So, we don't identify ourselves with a nationality. We identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. And identifying as a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, it erases, you know, the uh, animosities or uh, the traditional things that may have existed that once separated us, he is the meeting ground. He is the common ground where we can meet together and, and just love one another and know that we are brothers in him. And how have you or the Calvary movement um, taken that theology to the Arabs? How did that play out for, for you all? Well, we have an Arab fellowship right here in our church, mm. and uh, they meet on Sunday mornings. They meet in this very building, and uh, so it, it's just uh, we recognize that uh, they have a culture that is a little different from ours, and they may not be comfortable in our culture. We're not trying to acculturate them, uh, but we're trying to just, you know, fellowship with them and know that, you know, 
we meet on the common ground of our love for Jesus. Amen. Amen. I appreciate that. All right. Going back to this theological uh, tension of people who believe in replacement theology, or sometimes they call it supersessionism or fulfillment theology. There's a, obviously a range of different views, but given your your span of seeing pre-Israel and then the creation of Israel and today, how would you characterize the church broadly speaking and its view of Israel today compared to when you were growing up pre-48? Well, of course, in pre-48, before Israel became a nation again, uh, there were many who felt that God was through with the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, they uh, didn't believe there was any future uh, for the nation of Israel in God's plan, that he had set them aside and, you know, that it was all over for them. Uh, but yet, uh, growing up in with a different uh, perspective on that, I never did feel that God was through with them. And thus, I saw it as a fulfillment of prophecy. Others looked at the same thing, Israel becoming a nation again, uh, but they had a tendency of downplaying it and that it had no significance. It was not really a fulfillment of prophecy. So they weren't really excited over Israel becoming a nation as I was because I saw it as God fulfilling his word and just confirmation of the word of God. How has that changed post-48 in your view? Well, I think that... uh, those, there's been many who are very reluctant to change. You know, in other words, this is our position and don't confuse us with facts. You know, uh, they're not going to change uh, their their position that they've held for so long. And uh, traditionally uh, within their denominations, many times this is sort of the tradition that's been held mm-hmm. by the denominations. And it's more of the liberal churches that uh, really don't believe necessarily that God's word can be trusted fully and they challenge so many areas. And so it just gives another place where they just say, well, you know, that's just figurative speech or whatever, you know, and they just don't see it as the fulfillment of God's word right in our days. So do you think it's getting better? I mean, do you think it's there are more pastors and and followers of Christ, both in the United States and worldwide, who have a, a deeper, clearer biblical understanding of Israel, or is it getting better? Or is it getting worse? Or, you know, where are I, we now? I don't see much of a change. I think that uh, again, uh, as the Bible said, that those that are ignorant be ignorant still. You know, and I, I think that it still does uh, dominate in in many areas. You know, and and I don't see there being much of a uh, conversion uh, in you might say of, of a pastor's changing his theology and. And all, I, I think that that's hard to do, you know, to admit I was wrong. You know, I mean, those are probably some of the hardest words to say, I was wrong. And, and they're just unwilling to, to do that. There, I think there's probably a certain amount of egoism that's involved here, you know, and you just, you can't confess or, or admit to the fact that, well, I was wrong on that one, you know. Paul seems to speak to this in Romans 9, 10, and 11, where he by the Holy Spirit showing him down the corridors of history, right? He, mm-hmm. He's saying, uh, you know, don't become prideful about this or become arrogant that you've been grafted in. Right. But uh, So he seems to even signal that pride is going to be an issue for the Gentile yes. church. Yes, and I think it definitely is. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you look to, to younger generations of pastors mm-hmm. uh, growing up, uh, young believers growing up, what's your counsel? You know, just let's t- take some time to talk about 
in your years of experience and your understanding of the word and your, you know, what are some of those pearls of wisdom, what my father would call Voza, the voice of sound advice <laughs> that you would pass on to an up and coming uh, generation? Again, the believers here in the United States, but really around the world as well. Well, again, I would encourage a thorough study of the scriptures that deal with Israel and the promises that God made to the nation of Israel in the last days, and then just look at what is happening in the time in which we're living. And to realize that this is no fluke, it's a a fulfillment of God's promises that he's made to the nation, and his promises are not going to fail, they're going to be kept, and he is keeping them. And just to acknowledge that God is faithful, and he's true to his word, and he's keeping his word that he has made. And so it's just getting them into the word and and letting them get a different perspective of the word than maybe they've grown up with and to see, you know, just not as a threat, but Mm -hmm. this is a fulfillment Mm -hmm. of what God said he was going to do. How about your counsel for younger pastors and believers in terms of how to take their faith and, and make it practical? What would you encourage them and their congregations to be doing with regards to Israel and her neighbors? I think that perhaps getting to know the people. And of course, we've had the privilege of getting to know some of them very close and very personal friends that are Israelis who live in Jerusalem and who we visit when we are over there and have very close communion and fellowship with them. And I think that it is by coming to know them and to really see their heart and realize they have a heart for the Lord, just like we have a heart for the Lord. And, uh, you know, to just, again, uh, it takes away the fears that you might have or any uh, false uh, ideas that you might have concerning, you know, uh, the Jew and and all. I mean, we have characterized them uh, so much, you know, as we think of them uh, from the fact of uh, true businessmen and things of this nature. And uh, and and I think that it's wrong to uh, sort of categorize them in, in this way. Most of the Jews I know are not, you know, what uh, are considered a Jew, uh, you know, when a, a person speaks of them in a derogatory way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that uh, when you get to know them, you find out that they're just wonderful people who are just longing to be loved and longing to be understood, just like everybody else. It strikes me that the word of God in Israel is, uh, there's not a hunger for God's word uh, among the Jewish people generally. Now, there are more and more, mm-hmm. but it is kind of ironic, of course, that mm-hmm. the land, you know, the people from whom we got right. the word. Right. Uh, what's some of your hopes and dreams and prayers uh, for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people broadly um, in terms of the, the word of God? Because that's been the, the hallmark of your whole ministry. Well, Paul the Apostle said that blindness has happened to Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And so I think that uh, there are those who are open and will be open. And on the other hand, there are those whose eyes are blind and they will be blind until that day uh, that God takes the church out. And I think that that's going to uh, spell a great revival uh, in Israel, you know, and, and a discovery that we were wrong and that, uh, you know, in, in our ideas and our positions concerning Jesus Christ. And they're going to realize that, uh, 
you know, I think that they're going to just weep for him uh, to realize how could we have been so blind and how could we have just missed out? And, and yet uh, God is not through with them yet. Mm-hmm. And he's still going to be casting the net out and drawing in from them mm-hmm. a, a great number of people. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be, you know, if they're casting away uh, was salvation for the uh, Gentiles, when he gathers them together, it's going to be absolutely a glorious, glorious experience. As you look at some of the things that are prophetically coming towards Israel and the Middle East, what are the, 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 the prophecies that you sort of are, have on your heart, you're watching to see how those things might play out? Well, of course, I, I love Ezekiel 37, 36, 37, 38, 39. Uh, and I think that it gives you sort of a, a progression of things. Chapter 36 deals with the redevelopment of the land, agriculturally on all, and uh, how that uh, it, it was going to be redeveloped agriculturally. The, you know, the uh, desert's going to blossom like a rose, and, uh, you know, they're going to bring forth and fill the earth with fruit. And uh, then I think that 37, you know, the rebirth of the nation itself, where they become a nation and, and all. And I think that that's extremely important. But moving along, after they become a nation, uh, then there's going to come an evil thought in the minds of those in Gog and Magog, and they will come uh, with these other uh, Arab nations and Muslim nations in order to uh, destroy Israel and to uh, drive them out of the land. And I think that that's where we are right now in chapter 38, and the alignment of nations that are listed there, Iran and Turkey and so forth, that are, are going to be aligned against Israel, are, are there, and the alignment is being made. And I think that the next big thing is that abortive attempt to destroy this nation that God has brought back into existence. And I, I think that that's where God is going to intervene as he says, and he's going to defend them, and uh, they're going to be months in burying the, the dead, you know, that result from this conflict. And then chapter 39, when this happens, he's going to pour his spirit again upon the nation of Israel. And, and thus, I see the, the whole prophetic picture just coming right along. But when he pours his spirit again upon the nation of Israel, where does that place the church? Mm. You know, I believe that God's primary thrust will be with the nation of Israel in these last seven years. And uh, that, uh, of course, I do think, you know, from the prophecies of Daniel, uh, that uh, the Jews will be deceived by uh, this leader in Europe who uh, will help them in the rebuilding of their temple. And uh, they're going to be deceived and acclaim him sort of as the Messiah until he stands in the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple and declares he's God and demand to be worshipped as God. And then when they turn against him, he will turn against Israel. But God will preserve Israel through that last three and a half days when the judgment of God is going to be coming upon the earth in what we call the Great Tribulation period. So that will all culminate with the return of Jesus Christ with the church and the establishing of the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that means there's there's a lot of drama uh, still to play out. Yes, yes. Let's wrap up with what is your view uh, scripturally? If if, if America or any nation turns against Israel, 
in these last days? What's the effect, and particularly for America right now, um, what will be the effect of us turning away or, or even becoming hostile towards Israel? As God said, I will bless those that bless thee. I will curse those that curse thee. That was the promise to Abraham. And uh, it, I believe, holds true to the present day. And I think that there's a blessing for any nation that will stand with Israel and stand beside Israel and defend Israel. And I believe in the same token, uh, there is a curse for any nation that will uh, turn their back on Israel. And this is the fearful thing, I believe, for the United States right now. You've been one of the... um most influential pastors in the United States, by God's grace. I don't think you would have said, you know, 40, 50 years ago that that was going to be the case. What's your sense of where we are in America right now? How much how much trouble are we in? I think in the United States is in very big trouble. Do you think there's a hope for a, a, a third great awakening, a revival in the United States? I wish I could say yes. But I think of the words of Jesus who said, when I return, will I find faith? on the earth. And, and though I pray and hope that there could be a great awakening, and, and I think there, there could be, uh, you know, before he takes his church out, knowing that, you know, we're so close, and that's what my prayer is. But yet I really sort of question because of the one scripture that Jesus said, will there be faith when I return? Pastor Chuck, thank you so much for your time, for your wisdom, and I just pray that the Lord uses this interview to help encourage yes. a lot of people in the years ahead. I'm sure on this ninth anniversary of the passing of Pastor Chuck Smith, you've enjoyed listening to unique insights from a past recording detailing his life, ministry, walk with God, and thoughts about the Abrahamic covenant and the nation of Israel. If you found this podcast valuable, please get in touch with us. Let us know who you are. Are you someone who's searching for Jesus? Here's where you can find him. Do you want to go talk about something else on this show? Do you have a question you want Joel to answer? Go to joshuafund.com and click on Contact Us. Your feedback is incredibly valuable as we develop this podcast. And as always... You can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg and the Joshua Fund Ministry, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. Often we believe our questions mean we don't have faith, but I believe Jesus loves our questions. Our questions are windows into heaven. I'm Caden Fabrizio, and on the Questions with Caden podcast, we ask and answer one question per episode as relevantly and biblically as possible. Questions about fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, and so much more. Don't worry, your questions, they're not going to scare Jesus, so ask away. Listen and subscribe now at lifeaudio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.